Okay, let's dig into the Word of God together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for an opportunity to be together. Thank you for your Word uh, and the book of Acts that we're kind of walking through here. pray you teach us um, and motivate us and move us in light of who you are and what you've done for us so that, God, we can both know you better and, and serve others well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, about uh, uh, four years ago, uh, we studied the, the book of Titus together as a church, if you were here. And our goal during that study of the book of Titus, if you're not sure what Titus is, it's one of the New Testament letters, or we call them an epistle. Uh, we actually lump that together with First and Second Timothy. We call it pastoral epistles because it's kind of addressed to churches and pastors is kind of the big theme there. So we spent some time in, uh, in Titus, and our goal in that was to understand how the church is to function, how leadership is to work, and how we pull together on the mission Jesus has us on. And through that study, we made, uh, we made some changes to our, uh, our church constitution um, and to our church government, which might be the, most, the least interesting subjects for some of you this morning. You're like, I got up this morning to talk about church government. It's Mother's Day for crying out loud, and I braved a monsoon this morning getting here. So we're not going to dig too deeply into that subject, if you're wondering, but, uh, but it is important we understand uh, some things about that. And what I want you to see this morning in our study in Acts is how the church uh, developed, okay, it developed, it started in its infancy, its birth, and it kind of developed what we have today. How did it develop to where it is today? Uh, and how did it do that from the book of Acts, or really from Matthew all the way to the end um, of the New Testament Revelation? So we want to see how it structured itself, not just to better uh, serve the followers of Jesus, but also how it structured itself to be united uh, and to move on mission to serve people and speak the gospel. How did it get to that point? How did it do that? And this structure uh, resulted in, in a local church each having what we call members, um, members of a local church. We have pastors in a local church, and we have another group called deacons in a local church. We do see uh, one verse in uh, the book of Philippians, the actual opening verse of that. We see Paul addressing a letter to really all three of those people within the church. It says in that uh, passage, uh, that verse, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus, there's our members um, who are at Philippi, right? So a particular local congregation in the city of the town of, of Philippi with the, here it is, overseers. That's a synonym for a word. We don't use overseers typically as a title, but uh, it's the same. It would be synonymous with the term pastor and deacons. Okay, so there we see all three. We see members, we see pastors, we see deacons all addressed in this letter uh, of Philippians. So, on any given Sunday, you show up at a service particularly, uh, you will find uh, in that service, you'll find attendees. Uh, those attendees may be, may be believers, they may not be believers. They may be believers trying to figure out what is this Bible thing and Jesus and what is Christianity all about. It may be believers who are attendants, uh, who were maybe moved into the area recently, trying to find themselves a, a local church, you'll find them. You'll also find, on any given Sunday, uh, members who are part of a covenant community, of a particular local church like ours, and are identified as those members by pastors and deacons and fellow members. So they're all kind of covenanted, we call it together. Also, on any given Sunday, you will find uh, deacons who lead the church. We say lead the church in serving. Uh, there are people who rally the members together to use their gifts, their talents, and to help get the church moving and serving and on mission. And finally, we have pastors who uh, you'll find on a Sunday, who lead the church in shepherding, who are laboring at teaching and preaching and praying. is kind of their main priorities. So how did these offices develop, especially that pastor and deacon aspect? Where did they come from? 
You know, do, do churches just make this stuff up? You know, they, these roles, are they just kind of made up of things that uh, just kind of local churches just kind of do based on tradition and what's been done before them? Uh, you may actually, if you've read the Bible, you may ask the question which I'd asked before, right? Uh, I've read the Old Testament, the first, you know, first half of the book of the Bible. We call it the Old Testament. And you know what, Chris? I don't, I don't see these people. I don't see pastors in the Old Testament. I don't see deacons. Um, matter of fact, I don't even see the word church. So where, where did it all come from? Like, how do we get there uh, in the New Testament? Um, all I see is prophets and priests and kings and maybe temples and tabernacles and tents, but I don't see pastors and deacons and churches. And so as we, as we flip the Bible from the Old Testament to the New, in the first book of the New Testament called Matthew, uh, we begin to see Jesus on the scene, right? Jesus, God with us, God, fully God, fully man, uh, who's born, right? We get that in the Christmas story at the beginning of Matthew. And he, he, he establishes what is called the church through his death and through his resurrection. And he promises in the Gospel of Matthew, the first one there, to build his church, right, until, until he returns. He will build his church, and the gates of hell, he says, will not prevail against it. He promises to sustain it. He promises to grow it. He promises to use the church as his chosen instrument, his people, not the, not the building, not the programs or a Sunday morning meeting, but the church, the people, who are followers of Jesus, he promises to use that, those local churches as a means, as his primary means of getting the gospel out and seeing people served, seeing people loved, and seeing people known. And so that, that's how, how God works. And as you read the gospels, you find uh, Jesus, you begin reading those, you find Jesus choosing these, uh, sometimes called disciples, later called apostles, um, who are specific kind of followers of him. He uh, comes to name them apostles. They, he mentors them, right? You see this in the Gospels. He mentors them. He teaches them. And at the end of Matthew, he commissions them also in our book, Book of Acts. He commissions them, right? Acts 1.8. And uh, to lead and plant churches after he ascends to heaven. And that's what we're reading about in Acts. We're going to start seeing that, especially in chapter 13. We're going to see these churches started in all these different local areas and cities and towns. And so that's what we're seeing in Acts. And so we find in Ephesians chapter 2, another one of these letters in the New Testament, that these apostles, these early followers of Jesus, chosen kind of 12 that follow him, we see it in the reference this morning, um, are called the foundation of the early church, okay? Like a foundation of a house, they're kind of the bottom of that. Uh, we see this in Ephesians 2, 19 through 20, it says, you're no longer strangers and aliens, you're fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on, here it is, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And then we'll see as we get further into the book of Acts, okay? Now, just follow me for a minute because it's important you understand kind of where we're going in Acts and what's happening here. As we get further in the book of Acts, we, we find um, how a new yet old term comes up. And we've seen it already. It's this term called elders. Uh, in, the, in the first part of Acts, it's used to describe the elders of Israel is kind of how the, the phrase is used. And what does that, what does that mean? It, they're describing kind of the leadership structure of, of, uh, of Israel, the nation. Uh, but the apostles begin in the book of Acts, without any kind of formal explanation, start adopting that term. Um, the term elders gets kind of redefined, um, maybe you could say hijacked, and brought into the local church to then describe its leaders moving forward. And then that term is interchanged, used with the word pastors. So these, these elders are then appointed by the apostles, who are, who are then to appoint other elders, also called overseers or pastors, later in Acts, into each local church. For example, Acts 14. Uh, here was the method. Paul put it this way. It's, it's, here's how it worked in Acts 14, 23. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, okay, that's pastors, elders, 
with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So then we get to the epistles. We find more explanation on these pastors, as well as deacons start to show up for the first time in places like 1 Timothy. Uh, we find them. And not much is said about deacons other than their qualifications, while the pastors are addressed in every chapter of all those books, okay, in the, in the kind of the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus. And, um, and we find that, uh, you say, why is that the case? Uh, and we find that the reason that is is because while the duty of a pastor, this is important as we kind of lay the foundation this morning, we find that while the duty of the pastor is universally constant, meaning no matter what culture, context they're in, their call is to teach and pray and lead. That's what they're called to do. We also find the duty of the deacon varies depending on the needs of a particular congregation and the needs of the particular community or culture that they're in. So that role of deacon will change depending on the needs. Um, and so in this way, the Bible in many ways brilliantly establishes a theologically grounded, morally qualified group of pastors and grants them the freedom to then appoint whatever deacons are needed with the help of the congregation to help them lead the church in whatever areas of service are necessary for the sake of the gospel. Okay? That's what we're getting at. That's how the kind of the layout of the New Testament kind of goes. Thus, deacons are to work alongside the pastors, assist them in ministry. They're not less important. Uh, they simply perform a different function within the local church. They're to help, out, help to equip and serve the members of the church to get built up, to use their gifts, and to move out on mission. So the church was founded by Jesus, built upon the apostles. The apostles then point pastors, set in motion the office of deacon. And once the foundation is laid of the apostles, there remains only two offices in the church, and that is the pastors and deacons, which may explain to you why we don't have apostles. I'm not Apostle Chris. Okay, there's no apostles anymore. They were the foundational element. Now it's passed on to pastors and deacons. Okay. So let's tackle that, word, that office of deacon this morning, see where it came from, maybe the roots of it, and learn, learn, learn to, um, to look at the roots of that in the book of Acts. And this is important because there's a lot of confusion in the church of exactly what a role of a deacon is. What are they called to do? Uh, what is their function? In doing so, we find application for us, okay? Uh, because like pastors, deacons are to model uh, for the church the person and work of Jesus. Uh, so all of the roles of a pastor and deacon are still as we find out every single Sunday, it's still all about Jesus. And so their modeling is a very, in a very specific way. Deacons are to model Jesus in a very specific way. Let me give you like just one little explanation, one definition of a deacon. A deacon are basically merciful servants, okay? Merciful servants. Those two pieces go together. So when Jesus says, for example, in the Gospels, he says, I did not come to be what? Served, it's okay, you can, you know, I know it's cloudy and dark out there. You know, let's try this again. When Jesus said, I didn't come to be what? Served, right? I didn't come to be served, but to serve. There we go, we're rolling. And to give his, you know, to give his life a ransom for many. That's describing the model, that's what deacons model. They model that. They did not come to be served, but to serve. And when Jesus in the Gospels, we find him weeping over the brokenness of Jerusalem and the people there, and we see him in tears over that, that's another area that deacons model. They live out the life of Jesus in serving and being merciful and compassionate. That is really the summary, a good summary of what a role of a deacon is, okay? Matter of fact, if you didn't know this, the word deacon, literally the word means servant, okay? So that kind of gives you an idea of where that comes from. So... Uh, we first see this deacon-type role here in our passage in Acts chapter 6. And though it's not a, a prescriptive passage um, uh, on the office of deacons, it gives us very important principles that we begin to understand where the, where the role of deacon comes from. 
And when the pastors, or in our context here, um, our apostles here, get overburdened in the, in the ministry to the degree that they are unable to devote sufficient time to prayer and to Bible study, shepherding, they look to appoint ministry team leaders, assistants, servants, later become known as deacons, to help shoulder the load and lead the church in those particular areas. Okay, so that's what we're finding out. Where did this role come from? So the assistant's goal is to preserve the goals of the apostles here in our passage. In our context, in Acts 6, they were to lead the church in serving the widows and in food distribution, literally table servers. No doubt the apostles noticed this need. No doubt they, they wanted to meet the need themselves. Uh, we've seen them do this earlier in Acts, right? If you've been following along with us in Acts, the, the apostles have been serving, right? They have been meeting needs. Uh, we find them healing uh, a beggar in Acts chapter 3. We find them distributing money and supplies in Acts 4 to those in need. We find them healing the sick in, Act, uh, sick in Acts chapter 5. So they're, they're doing that, but it's gotten to be so much now and there's so much need, they go, we've got to appoint other leaders to help rally the church to meet those needs. Hence the role of a servant, which became to be known as a role of a deacon today. So they needed help. Why? Because while it's vital to preach the gospel, and it's vital to guard doctrine, it's vital to shepherd the spiritual needs of the church, it's also just as important as the Malachi, um, sorry, Micah in the Old Testament would say, to, to, uh, to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. That's also vitally important. So we need people, we need leaders in both those areas. That's why we have pastors, and that's why we have deacons, okay? So, all that. It was a long introduction this morning before we get in the text, but I had to set all that up for you so you understand. So here's what we're going to see in our text. We are going to look at our mission as a church and how we are to be about proclaiming and serving, okay, guarding and helping, meeting spiritual needs and as well as physical, emotional, material needs. And we need, we need both wings of the plane, the church, right? We need to do both of those. That's why we need leaders in both those areas so that we stay, we keep the plane moving forward, right? We stay on mission as Jesus would have us. So here's what we're going to look at. Uh, in order to do that, we, gotta, we have to, uh, um, we first need to meet needs, okay, set priorities, establish roles, and lastly, proclaim the gospel. All right, let's dig in. Number one, meet needs. Verse one, in these days, it says, disciples were increasing in number, okay? So the followers of Jesus, it's growing. A complaint by the Hellenists, we'll talk about them in a second, because that's a new word for many of you, um, against the Hebrews, in other words, you're trying to figure out what that means, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So Luke begins by telling us that the church just keeps growing. It's like every chapter in Acts, we read about this. It just keeps growing. It just keeps growing. And no matter what Satan has hurled at the church, it continues to grow. And the one thing we begin to understand about these new followers of Jesus, this, this church, um, the churches here that are growing, is that once they came to know Jesus, they were immediately immersed into community, which is really how they could weather the storms that they face. They looked after each other, uh, which, spilled into, which ended up spilling into looking out for others outside of their, their group. So outside of their covenant community, outside of their local church, they looked to care for each other inside. That spilled into caring for others outside. Okay, That's what happens. Uh, they were a very attractive community because of this. So look back uh, earlier in Acts. We've seen some of these passages already. Acts 2, 44 says, All who believed were together, had all things in common. They were selling their possessions, their belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, right? So they're meeting the needs. Two chapters later, Acts 4, verse 32 says, The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, 
and great grace came upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, lay at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So we find in the early church, they're, they're plugged in, they're connected to one another relationally. The other thing we find out about these new converts, these new followers of Jesus, was that amongst that group, there were actually many widows among them. Now, in that culture, uh, being a widow, was, it was extremely tough. Okay, it was, it was tough, especially economically, because only the, in that culture, really only the men are the ones who brought in the income in that culture. So, for example, if a, if a, if a husband died uh, in that culture and left the wife in jeopardy, uh, for there was, there was no life insurance either in that culture, okay? So there was no means of kind of taking care of uh, the, the property, the home, or whatever else was there. As a result, the church would step up and help take care of them, especially when there was no other family to help. Matter of fact, the whole, the whole chapter, 1 Timothy 5, Paul devotes a whole chapter to this discussion. That's how important this was for the early church. They were known as those who took care of the widows. Now, okay, now pause that for a second. In Judaism, okay, that was kind of the understanding of, uh, of uh, a belief system at the time. Judaism sought to take care of these needs in Jerusalem. That's where we are in the book of Acts, by the way. The city we're located in, in the text, is Jerusalem. And so before the church came along, that was the, kind of what they did. They took care of the widows. They had a custom uh, where they would collect, uh, take two collections of, of money and tangible goods from people. They'd stop by the marketplace. Hey, do you got any money? You got any you know, canned goods, whatever else that we, you can give us? Uh, they'd go to houses on Friday mornings, kind of knock on doors, say, hey, do you, you, got some, you got some food? You got some money that we can, we can collect so we can take care of the widows? That was kind of a normal thing. Later on Friday night or Friday evening, they would then distribute those things they collected and that's kind of how they took care of widows uh, in Judaism. But what is interesting in our text is that it seems that the church now has largely taken over this task in Jerusalem. And it's not just for those who came to Christ, but all the widows of the city of Jerusalem were being really taken care of by the church. You say, why, why is that happening? Well, because many of them, especially uh, the leadership, had spent time with Jesus. This is why they were doing this. They knew the importance that God placed on loving your neighbor, caring for the marginalized, despite background or creed. As a matter of fact, the widows uh, in the Bible were the subject of God's special interest over 28 different times, right? They're addressed 28 different times, very specifically on how the people, how, how God's people were supposed to take care of them. And the church was doing more now than just growing numerically, right? They were having a cultural impact on the city they lived in. And just like the rising, rising tide lifts all boats, so the church was raising the quality of life even in that culture. You say, how do, how do we know all that? All right, let's look at these two groups of people. Look at verse 1 again. There's two groups here. You see them? We have one group complaining about another group not fulfilling their cultural obligation uh, with widows. It's kind of, um, you can imagine if we brought it to modern day, it's kind of a political firestorm, Okay. These two groups, by the way, could not be any opposite of each other. There's a group called Hellenists and a group called Hebrews. Okay? The Hellenists would be the, we consider, maybe the liberal, um, unbelieving kind of Jews. In that culture, they spoke Greek. They didn't speak um, Aramaic or Hebrew. They assumed kind of Greek culture. Uh, then, and that might not sound like um, uh, that bad, but to a conservative Jew, the Hebrews... They view the Hellenists as sellouts, okay? Like, you're totally abandoning our culture, you're abandoning our traditions, you're going with the Greeks, and so they, they just were totally different from one another. Matter of fact, look at later on, Acts 9, we find this group again. 
Listen to Paul's story here, Acts 9. When he had come to Jerusalem, which is where we are in our text, same city, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. They did not believe for he, that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the, here they are again, the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. <laughs> so when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So here's Saul. Later, he begins, he gets the name Paul. We'll find him later. You may be more familiar with the Apostle Paul. This is him. Um, he is a new convert, new follower of Christ. He's preaching the gospel and he's button heads, right, with this group of people. And they didn't like him very much. They didn't like his gospel very much. And they wanted to kill him, but Saul wasn't backing down, right? He was like scrappy dude. You know, he was like, let me at him, right? He just, he's back. You remember Scrappy Doo, right? He's just back at him, like, let me back at him. And he's trying to go back in. The apostles have to grab him and be like, dude, we got to send you somewhere else. Like, you're going to get yourself killed. So they kind of redirect his passion another way. Meanwhile, the, the Hebrews were a group of people who were repulsed by Greek culture, sought to stay true to their traditions, okay? So they were totally different than this Hellenist group. So basically, here's what you got. You got a group of liberals. We could say a group of conservatives. We could say in our culture today, we got the Democrats, we got the Republicans. They're taking shots at each other, okay, for not taking care of the widows. It's your job, it's your job. No, it's your job, it's your job. You're not doing it. You should be doing it. And they're just, and the widows are caught in the crossfire. Does that make sense? They're not being taken care of because these two groups are kind of complaining that the other group should be taking care of them. And so, so why is this coming up? It seems a little foreign to our whole study in Acts so far. Like, why, why is this coming up in the context of, the apostles and the disciples and the early church and all that stuff. Well, what is presumed here, again, is that the church is the one who, back, who basically filled in. While the widows are caught in the crossfire politically and not being taken care of because two groups are complaining, the church has stepped up to fill that gap. And they started doing these collections. Presumably, they started helping take care of the widows, even the unbelieving Jews in their community. So while the Hellenists and the Hebrews are arguing about who should take care of the widows, the church steps up, does it themselves. Their caring concern for each other, again, bled into caring for those outside of their, their tribe. Um, in the Bible, there is a call to take care of one's family. There's a call to take care of one's brother or sister in Christ. That's your family or church. But also to take care of one's neighbor, right? Those outside of it. Uh, for example, 1 Timothy 5.8, says, uh, Paul says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially members of his own household, he's denied the faith is worse than an unbeliever. So there we find, first of all, there's that first circle. You need to take care of your immediate family. Secondly, there's extends to the, your spiritual family, we could say. First John 3, 16 says, By this we know love, that he, speaking of Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we sought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So, Physical family, you need to take care of. Next circle around, spiritual family. And then we could say the third group of people that we are to take care of is maybe the human family, all right? Uh, Galatians 6.10, we find this. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith, right? So we take care of those within, but we also do good for everyone. We try to do that. So those are our three circles of people. So our culture solution to the problem, like the church is facing Acts 6, right, there's all kinds of solutions that we, we hear, right, in the news or whatever else, right? Some, some solutions are we just throw money at the problem. There's a group of people in need, let's just, let's just pump money, raise taxes, right, and throw money at it. 
Another group of people may say, you know, well, let's just tell those people to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and take care of their own stuff, right? That's the other side of the argument that people make. And others just seem to cast blame on somebody else for not doing it, which is what we see in our text here. But as Christians, as as a church, as followers of Jesus, we have the solution in the gospel, right? Only the gospel gives motivation to minister to the whole person, which explains why these unbelievers we find in, in the why the church keeps growing, why they're clamoring for an audience with the early church. They're growing because their impact is so much bigger than just their little group. It impacts the whole city. Uh, Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, said the following about this. He says, only the gospel understands that sin has ruined us both individually and socially. Only Christians armed with the word of God and spirit, planning and working to spread the kingdom and righteousness of Christ can transform a nation as well as a neighborhood as well as a broken heart. Right? We, we have the motivation to do all of that. So this leads the church to a very important decision because balance is key here. The church ha, uh, can easily abandon the gospel and just say, you know what, we're not going to do any of that stuff anymore. We're just going to go meet needs. And that happened, by the way, early on in the 20th century called the social gospel movement where they said, you know what, we don't need to preach the Bible. We don't need to really dig into the gospel much. Let's just serve people. And that's good. We need to serve people, but they abandon the other side. We need to do both. And so we find this, number, point number two here, that they had to set priorities. So look at verse two. Twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So here we find, by the way, our first church family meeting. Okay, the one we're going to do in a, in a couple of Sundays. This is a church, church family meeting. The full number of disciples was the whole church. Apostles got them all together and they had a family meeting together. And not only do, uh, they not only see the suffering of the widows in their community, they feel the pull that they want to help. The apostles do. They've been helping, right? They want to help, but they realize they can't do it all by themselves. And they and realize that they don't say, you know what, they, they aren't our responsibility. You know what, tell the synagogue, tell the government to take care of them. Instead, they organized a group of people to help take care of them, even though they weren't all part of the church. And yet they made sure that they kept their priorities in line. The church will always have to strike a balance between spiritual and material concerns because there's always a temptation to teeter to one side or the other. And notice they didn't even deliberate about this. I love this. Over whether they, were, over whether they should be doing this, but, but who should be doing it. They're not saying, hey, should we do this? Should we not? Should we help? Should we not? They don't even argue that. They go like, we're doing it. Let's figure out how we're going to do it. So the entire church is behind this. Um, they had been taught this from Jesus again for this group they are talking about, serving. Um, this group of people, this group of widows, this culture of the hellness and stuff, um, they weren't just unbelievers. Some of them were downright angry against the gospel. Remember, we just saw that uh, later in Acts chapter 9, we saw that they, they wanted to kill Paul, right? So the, you know what the church is doing here? They're not just loving those in need, they're actually loving their enemies. That's exactly what Jesus taught them, right? Luke 6 35, love your enemies, do good, lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great. We're seeing the church literally live that out here in Acts chapter 6. So we find the apostles here. They wanted to make sure that the spoken word of God, the, the, the gospel, would not be left behind in this endeavor. This was their priority as they move forward with all ministry work, and it's our priority as well. We always seek to, to guard the pulpit here, make sure we're preaching the gospel, we guard doctrine, we proclaim the gospel, but we can't abandon the need to serve not just insiders but also outsiders and finding ways we can do that. So let's get kind of personal with this one, application-wise. As you think about your life, what are, what are kind of your priorities? This is what the, the Bible sent before us, right, the priority line. If you don't set your priorities, uh, you'll begin to find that they will be set for you by the tyranny of the urgent. 
If you're not setting Jesus as the first thing in your life, then all the kind of tables of life will push and crowd them out. They set Jesus as the number one priority, which informed everything else. Also, do you have time in your schedule? On the other side of this, do you have time in your schedule to serve others? Are you actively seeking to meet needs around you and join? We have deacons here at Parkside. Join the deacons at Parkside in serving. We have deacons lead in all kinds of areas of service. Talk to a pastor, get connected, talk to a deacon, check our website, you'll find them listed there, right? They lead in all kinds of areas, everything from, from working in kids' ministries to working with widows to doing visitation to so many other needs that we have, and we're constantly adding as we see pastorally as we get, hey, we, need, we have needs here, we need someone to lead in this particular area. That's what deacons do. So we need to set our priorities, center our lives on Jesus and on people, and that leads the church now to begin to establish these roles, okay? Number three. Establish roles. Verse 3, it says, uh, Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and wisdom, we will appoint, uh, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So the church moved forward as it moved forward. It needed to establish roles. Right? The, role, the whole point of having leadership or having roles is, to, is so that you can mo- move people and organize people to move in the same direction. Right? That's why they have that. They didn't create these roles for role's sake. Well, I guess we got to create a deacon here or a pastor, so let's just make a role. It's like, no, they did it. They created them because they were needs. In other words, the deacon's ministries here arise from specific circumstances. This is why we have deacons over specific areas within our church. The pattern we find here and throughout the book of Acts is that the church was constantly engaged in kind of adapting these traditional methods and structures to meeting existing situations both for the sake of the welfare of the whole church and for the mission of the gospel, all while staying grounded in the scriptures. All of that kind of balance. So the apostles couldn't do everything. And so they sought other godly men to take some leadership roles in the early church. Now, they weren't officially, you don't see the word deacon here. They're called servants, same word, by the way, same root word at least. Uh, But we'll come to see those uh, in 1 Timothy uh, and, and Titus, but they are, they are guys who serve and meet a need in the church and thus serve as a, a prototype of what later becomes deacons. And this is vitally important for the local church. The church has to raise up men to lead from amongst itself. That includes pastors and that includes deacons. Well, I told, said earlier we're going to have an announcement of some lay pastors being put before you and pastors put before you uh, within a local church. You should always be raising up people from amongst yourself. This is what we see happening here. And later, 1 Timothy, we see this, this deacon role expand, um, and it goes, we find that as well going throughout uh, the, the pastoral epistles. Now, in the text, we find that the role of the apostles was to proclaim the gospel, plant and build churches, which became known, become known as pastors later. Uh, their schedule was to pray, preach sermons, right, uh, build, build into people, plant churches. The servants' leader's role later becomes deacons was to preserve the goals of the apostles by caring for the widows, and their schedule was the daily coordination here of food distribution. They understood their role as an opportunity to make sure the word of God gets preached. That's what their their role was. And so we find here, uh, and this is important for us to kind of understand, Midwest kind of church culture sometimes we get these lines a little blurry. We find here that the the deacons were not a a second power block, okay, uh, in the church as if God based the... the, uh, church structure off of American government structure, okay, that's not how it worked, three branches of power kind of going on there. The deacons were not supervisors of the pastoral team. Uh, We see uh, servants who later become deacons in church serving as supporters and encouragers of the apostles who would then become pastors. 
This is why uh, even the order in the book of 1 Timothy is the way it is with pastors first being addressed and then deacons and why pastors take up most of the admonishment in those letters as well. They were the ones that were going to be held accountable, as the book of Hebrews will say later, uh, for the souls of the people. So we have roles to fulfill. We all have them. And we need to, need to each be doing them. Paul actually uses in the book of 1 Corinthians that we studied the analogy of a body, right? The body needs, all, all parts of the body are important. They're of equal importance. You know, the mouth needs the, the legs, the head needs the arms, the eyes need the ears kind of thing. And we all have these gifts. Listen, listen to 1 Peter 4. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So you have them, right? What are your gifts? You say, I don't know. What are you good at? What have people told you that you're good at? It's always a good thing, too. People kind of notice that and go like, hey, you're really, really good at this. What do you enjoy doing? What's life giving to you and serving you will find your calling where your kind of deep gladness and the world's deep hunger kind of meet. When those things meet together, you find that. How are you using that in the local church? How are you using them to get the gospel out? And the reason God has you where you are is to glorify him, it says in the text, by serving others, right? So ask yourself, where has Jesus placed me? Where am I best positioned now to serve others? Now, God may call you to do something different in the future. Um, may put different people into your life. But where has he put you right now, right? Where does he have you? He has you in the perfect spot now to serve others. Uh, too many Christians get so concerned about the future or potential ways of serving God differently in the future. And when they neglect right before them, what does God have before me right now, right, to serve? What are the needs that are around me that I can, I can step into and fill? And so we find the early church establishing roles, okay? The apostles choose godly men, thus proving that the office of deacon is a spiritual office, not just a pastor. Um, pastor's office to do that. And they, they prayed over them, we find the text. They sent them off to lead in serving. And they begin to organize the followers of Jesus to take care of those widows. But in the text, it also indicates that these, these servants did more than just serve. We find also, lastly, they, they spoke as well. They talked. They weren't just quiet. They, they spoke. And they freed up the apostles to speak too. So lastly, number four, we see the proclamation of the gospel here in verse 7. So as these men would serve, as they would meet needs in the city and keep Jesus as their priority, fulfill the roles they'd been given, they would both provide the, the apostles the opportunity to preach the gospel, and they themselves would speak up and, and preach the gospel. You say, how do, how do I know that? Look at verse 7, right at the very end of verse 7. And great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That is a fascinating little commentary there, right? We've seen people added to the church. We've seen people come to faith throughout Acts. It's always just kind of a generic group of people, but here's a very specific group, and there's a reason why it's brought up. The, the early church noticed this. Priests are coming to know Christ. So they're, they're growing. The church is growing. We get these new converts of priests. Why is that important? Do you remember their role? I talked about earlier. Their role in Judaism, priests, they'd be priests of Judaism, by the way. Their role, they were supposed to take care of widows. Remember, they were the ones who were going around on Friday morning to the marketplace, knocking on doors, collecting money and goods, and distributing them to widows. That was their cultural priority as a priest. And yet we find here in our text that the church has begun to do that instead. They've begun to fill that role. And as the church is meeting those needs, these priests saw it, right? And they heard the gospel came to faith in Christ as a result of that. Can you imagine being them? 
They're looking around going like, wait a minute, that's, that's, that's my job. That's what, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Right? They're observing the followers of Jesus who are really embodying the life of Jesus right, for the people to see. And they're shocked by it. They're drawn in by the observance of this sacrificial love and service. And as they're drawn in, they hear the gospel from the apostles who have been freed up to devote themselves to the word of God and no doubt heard it from the, the servants or soon-to-be deacons as well. Remember, this is important. Deeds of mercy in and of themselves aren't going to bring anybody to Jesus. Okay? It's not going to happen. There needs to be words spoken. They need to hear the good news. You see how, how effective these guys must have been when they were caring for people. Because they weren't just caring for them, they were speaking. They were talking about Jesus as they did it. And they couldn't help but do that. They're both proclaiming and serving. You see why it's so important the church has pastors and deacons, right? Because you've got to do both. You've got to serve and you've got to speak. And that's their, that's their jobs is to help make sure the church serves and make sure the church speaks the gospel. That's their job, main jobs of what they're supposed to be doing. And when the church functions that way and you've got godly people in those positions and the church is following them and they're serving and speaking, this is what happens in the book of Acts. This is what happens, okay? We see people come to him. And the, these deacons, these servants, would become the spark plug in the movement of the church that would make it unstoppable. I mean, this deep kind of concern and, and love for people and love poured out in deeds of service to others provided a platform for talking about Jesus. Did you just understand how important the role of deacon is? In many ways, it was the role of the deacons not the pastors, the roles of the deacons that sparked an explosion of Christianity throughout the Roman Empire. I've told you this church history a lot, and I just always want to reiterate where we came from because it's important you understand. I mean, this is what happened in church history. The church was serving, led by deacons serving, that opened the platform for the gospel to be spoken by the people and by the pastors. But if they hadn't have done that, if these servants hadn't stepped up to do what we see in the text, if the church hadn't followed that and modeled that throughout other local areas, there would have been no platform. Nobody would have listened to the gospel. No one was just going to show up at a building and just listen. But they saw love, compassion, concern for the marginalized and those in this context, the widows who had needs, and that caused them to listen. It caused them to open up their eyes and go, what is, who is this? Who are these people? What are they saying? What do they believe? Listen, uh, give you, uh, there's a, in the second century, all right, this is the first century, we're reading here, this is first century history. Second century history is a guy named Justin Martyr was his name. He was one of the early church kind of pastors, leaders. And uh, one of his prominent writings, he, he had a writing uh, in one of his books where he was talking to a guy named Trifo, okay? These are Roman, you know, Roman names. But he's talking to Trifo, and he's having this letter back and forth. Trifo is this Jewish theologian, and they're writing back and forth about Christian theology and Judaism theology. And in the following quote I'm going to read to you, uh, Trifo was baffled by the Christians who believed they were different. They believed they were different from others, yet they didn't separate themselves from others. Instead, they loved and served others who were different from them. And for him, he couldn't understand that. Here's what he said. He said, the precepts in which you call your gospel are so marvelous and great, I don't think that anyone could possibly keep them. For I took the trouble to read them. <laughs> it's like, I took the trouble to read your, your, your Bible. But this is what surprises us most. And I was speaking for kind of all of Judaism. That you who claim to be pious and believe yourselves to be different from others, do not segregate yourselves from them, nor do you observe a manner of life different from that of the Gentiles. For you do not keep the feasts or the Sabbath. You don't, nor do you practice the rite of circumcision. You place your hope in a crucified man, 
and still expect to receive favors from God when you disregard his commandments. What a commentary. <laughs> you put your hope in a crucified man, you still expect to receive grace, basically, favors from God when you disregard his commandments. He's trying to understand this whole grace-based relationship, right, with God. Then you get into the third and fourth centuries, and you see the church explode in numbers. And the reason it did, again, we've talked about this, the plagues hit, right? Everyone's abandoning uh, the cities of the Roman Empire. 5,000 people a day are dying of the plague as it comes in, and, uh, and Christians stayed. The, the church stayed where they were. Uh, a Roman historian talked about this. Uh, his name's uh, Thus, Thus, I can never pronounce his name. I just call him T. Diddy, but uh, T. <laughs> it's an easy way to remember his name. He says, uh, it's on the screen, Thucydides. Uh, people died, he said, with no one. This is his commentary. People died with no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses in which all the inhabitants perished just through lack of any attention. The bodies of the dying were heaped one on top of the other. Half-dead creatures could be seen staggering about in the streets or flocking around the fountains in their desire for water. The temples in which they took up their quarters were full of dead bodies of people who had died inside of them. So he, he's just giving commentary on what's happening. And then another historian, Rodney Stark, his book on the rise of Christianity, he said this, and commenting on that, he said, it was what any prudent would have done, meaning any prudent person would have just run for the hills. Get me out of here. I'm leaving. I'm not going to catch the plague. I'm gone. Had they the means, unless, he says, of course, they were Galileans. Now, just so you understand, when he says Galileans, that's a pejorative term that they called the Christians. Galileans was like the out, you know, the woods, out, you know, those kind of people out there, Galileans, followers of Jesus. They're just nobody. Yeah, unless you're them, they stayed. <laughs> and so they acted completely different. The deacons led a movement of sacrifice and service. Instead of running and caring just for themselves, they cared for their brothers and sisters in Christ. But even more shocking, they stayed behind and took care of the unbelievers who were dying when their family and friends left them behind. And this was all because of the influence of the role of deacon leading the church and serving as they did. Can you imagine being an unbeliever during this time? You say you've you got the plague or you're around it and you can't leave or you don't have the means of leaving or you just don't have the means of getting out of, out of, out of town. Everyone around you is dying. Maybe you're going to be next. And you look for your priests, right? You look for your priests for answers and they not only don't have answers, they're nowhere to be found, right? They've left you and they run, they run for their lives. You look around, your family has left you. You're all abandoned alone. And you look around, but you see there's one group that stays and there's this group of Galileans, these group of Christians led by deacons, and they're around caring for people. And they weren't doctors and nurses. They were just giving, you can read the history, they were just giving water and a, here's a place to sleep, you know, and let me take care of you and sit with you. I mean, that's all they were doing. They weren't, they didn't have any medical degrees here. And they're caring for them. When the plague ended and all of it was over, you only had Christians left and those Christians helped. So you know what happened? Roman Empire exploded. Almost everybody became a Christian. They're like, we, we, sign, we sign up for that. <laughs> Who does that kind of thing? Who sacrifices like they did? And here, I love this. And then I'm gonna give you one more quote here by a, a guy who was a, who's a pastor at the time. He was a pastor, and here's what he wrote about in the, the fourth century. He said, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves, thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attended their every need and ministering to them in Christ with and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease. 
drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Does that sound familiar at all? <laughs> I mean, do, you, do you hear the gospel in that? I mean, literally lived out? I mean, that, that last part there, they, they, many in nursing and caring for others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. So they worked to heal these people, help them. They ended up dying. They ended up surviving. So the people who survived look back and go, what made them give up their life for me? What made them serve the way they did? That's when they start asking questions, which easily led to, let me tell you about Jesus. He, he actually died in our stead. He actually took our sin, our death, our curse upon himself, transferred that to himself and died in our stead and gave us his righteousness. That's why we today can stand there in this plague and we can serve you and die, and die in your stead. Do you see how radical, why, why Christianity was so attractive? It was because of that. They'd never seen anything out like this. It's no wonder that the priests in our text here in Acts 6 were becoming obedient to the faith because they're seeing the church live and act like ways that they just didn't understand. I'll give you one more quote, and I've given you this one before. I just always think this one's pretty funny, because this is Roman Emperor Julian. He was the emperor during the time of the plagues. He's trying, he's trying his best. He's trying to get his temples, his priests to stay. He's trying to get them to serve and help, and he, just, he gets so upset at the Christians, because he, he doesn't understand it. Here's what he says. He says, these irreverent Galileans, these Christians, not only feed their own poor, but, but ours as well. And everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. In other words, everyone knows that we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing here. He goes on to say, he says, um, they are welcoming them into their agape. That's kind of like their feasts or their, their dinners. They attract them as children are attracted with cakes. As if like the Christians are out there going like, hey, I got some food. Come on inside. You know, he's, he's making fun of them. While the pagan priests, his priests, his own priests, neglect the poor, the hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity and by display of false compassion, because he can't figure out why, so he calls it false compassion, have established and given effect to their pernicious errors. See their love feasts, their tables spread out for the needy. Such practice is common among them and causes a contempt for our gods. Our gods are really mad at us, and they're really mad at these Christians because they're doing what we're supposed to be doing. <laughs> you see, I mean, this is, this is not Christians giving commentary. This is unbelievers writing about what was happening. Listen, last week we talked about was a call to sacrifice. This week is a call to pour out your life in service and love for others for the sake of the gospel, right? You have a choice to make. Because serving people is it's not easy, right? If it was easy, everyone would do it. Loving people is, can be really difficult at times. Um, and you can choose to not do that and choose not to follow Jesus in that way. And it may be, your life may be more comfortable and safe as a result of that. But understand that the result of that, though, is that your heart becomes cold and calloused and really miserable over the long run, and you miss the opportunity that God has placed before you to love and serve others. I'll give you this last quote here. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I can't get through too many sermons without quoting, but uh, he said this, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable.
right? So, church, we have the opportunity to live out not just the, the gospel, the word, the gospel that's been spoken to us and given to us of Jesus who lived the life we couldn't live, died death we should have died to save us. We get to embody the opportunity to embody the person and work of Jesus by seeking not to be served, but to serve and to give our life as the church has done. This is why, because I've been talking to some of you, you've been reading Acts, you're like, oh man, like Acts is like so exciting. Like you see the church grow like this. Like, man, I wish, wish that was like today. It's like, if we live like them, not just believe, we believe the same thing they believed. There's no issue with belief here. If we live like them and sacrifice like them and serve people like they did, I think it's quite possible we see the same thing happening to people around us and around, and, and, and around uh, the places in which we live. Well, we're going to take communion together. Uh, hopefully you picked that up around the tables in the back. I'm going to pray. Um, if you're new with us, what this is, there's bread and there's juice. We, we do this in remembrance of Jesus. He told us to do this so we don't forget so that we remember, a very tangible way to look at it, remember his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us. We do in remembrance of him. Um, we're going to take a moment. I'm going to pray and give some quiet time to reflect and, and, uh, and, and see, evaluate before God kind of what maybe he spoke to you this morning through the text. Uh, and then we'll, we'll end up our, in our service here with a song. If you're not a follower of Christ, it's not for you. We would love to answer your questions. Um, I'll be behind the rock wall here at the end of our service here in a few minutes. And would love to uh, talk to you. So let me pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Uh, thank you for your word. Um, thank you just for even just church history and how things have unfolded uh, throughout time. And just seeing how what we see here in the book of Acts was literally lived out the first three, four hundred years um, of the church. And this is why we are here today. God, they serve people. Um, thank you for the role of deacon that you've given to us. Thank you that how important it is. It's not a it's not a political role. It's not a traditional role. God, it's a, it's a thoroughly biblical mission role that God was so crucial in the early church of leading people to serve and care for people. Um, that's what we see in Acts 6. See, that's the roots of it. And God, I pray that you would um, continue to bless us with godly deacons who can lead us in serving, point us to the needs around us, rally the troops uh, so that, God, we can move forward together uh, in seeing the gospel go forward and people served, loved, and see people come and know you. In Jesus' name, amen.